Due to the sensitive nature of today's episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of crowd crushes, suffocation, death, and trauma that may be upsetting for some listeners. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Sheffield, England, April 1989. 17-year-old Philip Wilson woke with his head pressed into the damp earth. Blood trickled from his mouth into blades of grass. It seemed as if every bone in his body had been crushed, but that wasn't even the worst of it. All around him were the agonizing screams of men, women, and children. Some crying, some wailing for help, others gasping for breath. Everything up to that point was a blur, a surreal pastiche of images, metal scraping on his skin, a knee in his back. And then, somehow, he woke up on the grass, feeling like he'd been trampled by an elephant. As Philip opened his eyes, he saw medics race by with a makeshift stretcher. They knelt by a body, then pressed their fingers into a young girl's neck, checking for a pulse. One of the medics shook his head, hopelessly. Then they moved to the next victim. That was enough motivation for Philip. Even though he was in pain, he lifted himself to his feet. He had to get out of there. As he looked around, he realized he wasn't in a war zone. He was at an English football match, a soccer game. And he was one of the lucky ones. Because he was still alive. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the Hillsborough disaster of 1989. At the start of an English football match between Liverpool and Nottingham Forest, an overcrowded stadium resulted in the injuries of hundreds of spectators and the deaths of 96 people. Today, we'll walk you through the events leading up to the match, going moment by moment as the disaster unfolded. Next time, we'll examine the government's investigation and three leading conspiracy theories regarding who was to blame, from the police to stadium management to a shocking connection with a mysterious secret organization. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. 
I know for me in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd started to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. It was a Saturday, April 15, 1989, in Liverpool, England. 17-year-old Philip Wilson woke up, brimming with excitement. Not because his cousin was getting married that day, even though he was happy for the adorable couple. He wasn't attending. No, he had a more important event to get to. A football match. Or soccer, if you're listening in the U.S. It may sound crazy to skip a family wedding for a sporting event. But for many in England, playing and watching football trumped everything. They lived and breathed it. To some... Football was religion. And when your team made it to the semifinals of the FA Cup, the coveted national championship, you dropped everything to go, even your cousin's wedding. Especially if your hometown squad was Phillips Liverpool. In the 70s and 80s, Liverpool was one of the most dominant teams, a dynasty. For years, they'd consistently been ranked one of the top teams in their league, They even won the FA Cup three years before, in 1986. They may not have had the cachet fame of London teams like Arsenal or the global notoriety of Manchester United, but they had a loyal, almost cult-like following of spectators. According to These Football Times, a BBC Panorama reporter once described Liverpool fans as, quote, like nothing he had ever seen. At every game, They chanted, cheered, and sang to root on their side and intimidate opponents. Don't get the wrong impression. Football matches weren't innocent sing-alongs around a campfire. Quite the opposite. From the earliest days of football, they were violent affairs. 
In the 13th century, an early iteration of the sport began as a way for neighboring villages to settle scores without killing each other. But while kicking around an inflated pig bladder, they were oftentimes just as brutal. By the late 1800s, when football became an organized sport, games were still dangerous. In 1909, during a match between two Scottish teams, there was a riot involving 6,000 spectators. But violence at football matches was typically the exception, not the rule. However, in the 1960s, things seemed to take a turn for the worst, and the violence increased. There was heckling, throwing of objects, and fighting inside and outside the stadiums. A common practice during this era was called taking ends. One team's supporters invaded the stands of their opponent, chasing them away. Anything left behind, flags, scarves, or hats, were considered trophies. There was something tribal, even animalistic, about it all. Later on, a catchy term was invented for violent football fans, hooligans. According to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, the word may have originated from the name of a young Irish brawler in the 1890s, Patrick Houlihan, which in Gaelic sounds more like hooligan. There are numerous theories about the rise of hooliganism, more than we have time to explore today, but experts point to socioeconomic inequality, rise of right-leaning spectators, and violence against immigrants as some of the culprits. And Liverpool was no stranger to hooligans. In 1985, a group of fans attended the European Cup final in Belgium, where Liverpool was playing Juventus, a famous Italian team. Partway through the match, a group of Liverpool fans charged at the Juventus side of the stadium. The crush was so powerful, it caused a stadium wall to collapse, killing 39 people. According to the Social Issues Research Center, even though the hooliganism was a real problem at football matches, it was likely perceived as a bigger issue than it actually was because of local television coverage. As a result, football league officials and stadium management may have overreacted with their responses. One solution was crowd control fencing around specific areas of the stadium where hooligans tended to congregate, especially standing room only areas where poorer, younger, and working class spectators gathered. One of those retrofitted stadiums was Hillsborough in Sheffield, England. That's where Philip Wilson was going to see the Liverpool-Nottingham match that April day. Hillsborough was an old arena, originally built in the 1890s, but in 1977, it was given a major update, those steel crowd control fences. The barriers were built to be impenetrable, with serrated lips, like the kind you might see outside a zoo or a prison. But fences didn't prevent every problem. In fact, they may have exacerbated them by not allowing trapped fans out. In 1981, during another FA Cup semifinal at Hillsborough, 38 spectators were injured during a crowd crush that was made worse by this fencing system. In spite of the warning signs, Hillsborough was again selected in 1989 as the venue for an FA semifinal. 
When the day came for the big game on April 15th, police and security arrived early at Hillsborough Stadium to prepare for the match. They knew this one would be a little more intense than most ordinary matches. For years, veteran police chief superintendent Brian Mole oversaw all games at the stadium. Both regular season matches of their home team, Sheffield Wednesday, as well as the past two semifinal games. So he was considered a capable and competent leader. But just 19 days before this match, he was forced to resign his post due to a hazing scandal. That day, in Mole's place, was a new police chief superintendent, 45-year-old David Duckenfield. Even though Duckenfield was an experienced police officer, he later admitted in court that he wasn't prepared to command a football match. He also confessed he didn't review the layout or capacity of the stadium beforehand, but he went ahead with his duties anyway. At 10 o'clock that morning, he held a pregame briefing with the rest of the officers. According to Duckenfield, the meeting was focused mainly on arresting hooligans and preventing disorder, not general crowd safety. To be fair, Duckenfield wasn't the only one worrying about hooliganism. Many people around the country perceived them as a criminal element, one that needed to be dealt with. But the troublemakers only made up a small percentage of the total spectators at a match. Since the semifinal at Hillsborough was sold out, that meant Duckenfield was responsible for 54,000 people. He was also in command of over 1,000 officers from neighboring cities. In all, it was about 38% of the regional police force. Not an easy task for a first-timer. We don't know exactly what happened during the Duckenfield briefing, but he likely handed out assignments to various officers. That may be when he assigned police superintendent Roger Marshall to oversee the entry gates and turnstiles for the Liverpool side. Once the briefing was over, Duckenfield took up his post in the stadium control box where he'd observe the match and operations. The office was outfitted with television monitors showing security camera views of just about everywhere in the stadium. It may seem ironic that such an outdated stadium was equipped with high-tech surveillance equipment, but it was even more ironic that the cameras likely didn't prepare Duckenfield for what was about to come. Around the same time, Philip Wilson was trying to get to Hillsborough a little early for the game. He may have strolled through the old city, past thousands of Liverpool and Nottingham fans, drinking at cafes and pubs, enjoying the unseasonably warm day. Around 1.30, an hour and a half before the match, Philip arrived with plenty of time to spare. Like many English football stadiums, it was divided into two sections, home and away. During a normal game, home was reserved for Sheffield Wednesday, its local team. But since Liverpool and Nottingham were both visiting for the playoffs, it was a toss-up. Even though Liverpool had a larger fan base, they were given the smaller entrance and stands. We don't know why exactly, especially after Liverpool had complained about the arrangement the previous year. But apparently they drew the short end of the stick again. 
Philip and other Liverpool fans entered through a narrow road called Lepping's Lane, which led through a few turnstiles and into the stadium. Philip was probably too excited to notice that off to the side were giant steel exit gates, but they were only opened at the end of matches, allowing crowds to exit. Instead, Philip and the other fans were forced to check in through the turnstiles. Afterwards, they strolled through a narrow pedestrian tunnel into the stadium. Eventually, Philip found a spot in one of the standing room only spectator pens. Philip was so early, he was one of the first 20 people in the pen. He had so much room, he recalled laying down in the sun and taking a nap. Little did he know, this peaceful moment was about to change, and he might not make it out of the stadium alive. Coming up, the floodgates open and chaos ensues. Hey, it's Carter from Cold Cases, here to tell you about a very special crossover I'm doing with Sarah Turney and the fantastic series Disappearances. In 1959, nine hikers mysteriously died in Russia's Ural Mountains. Over 60 years later, we're still left wondering what exactly happened on Dyatlov Pass. Sarah and I are teaming up to take a closer look. If you're a ParCast listener or a true crime fan, this episode is for you. Follow Cold Cases and check out our deep dive into the Dyatlov Pass incident today. Listen for free only on Spotify. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time. Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Now, back to the story. It was Saturday, April 15th, 1989. An hour before the highly anticipated semi-final football match between Liverpool and Nottingham Forest. Philip Wilson, a Liverpool supporter, had arrived so early he laid down in the spectator pen and took a nap. But around 2 p.m., he likely woke to the sound of crowds clamoring into the area. Within minutes, several chartered buses from Liverpool had pulled up to the stadium. Road construction had delayed them, causing them to arrive late in close succession. In the span of just a few moments, hundreds of fans appeared at the turnstiles where police superintendent Roger Marshall was posted. Since Liverpool had been assigned the smaller away side of the stadium, there were fewer turnstiles. It was a slow, painstaking process to let people in. At first, it went smoothly, But soon, crowds began to accumulate at the bottleneck. At around 2.15, about 45 minutes before kickoff, police reported their first major incident. Annoyed by the slow-moving crowd, one man jumped the turnstiles and was immediately detained by police. Meanwhile, Liverpool fans who did make it through the gates hurried through the entrance tunnel to the central viewing pen where Philip Wilson was already waiting for the game to start. There was no longer room for him to lay down and nap. 
but he was likely excited to be joined by his fellow Liverpool faithfuls. This was one reason he and many fans came to the matches, just to be part of the community. Except today, Philip saw the pen was filling up rapidly. He was accustomed to standing shoulder to shoulder with other fans, but not like this. Strangely, according to the BBC's live broadcast at the time, the adjacent pens were relatively empty. Probably because the only way to get to the other pens was back down the narrow entrance tunnel, where Philip and the others had first come in. If they turned around, they'd have to battle a steady upstream of arriving spectators. So anyone now in the central pen was officially stuck. Meanwhile, the crowd outside the stadium at Leppings Lane was getting bigger. A crush was beginning to form at the turnstiles. At this point, turnstile counts showed there were still around 5,700 ticketed fans who hadn't yet entered the stadium. But at the slow rate of the turnstiles, that meant a very long queue. To alleviate the rush, Chief Duckenfield and one of his ground commanders discussed delaying the kickoff of the game so they could allow all spectators in without incident. But in the end, they decided against it. The game needed to go on. By this point, the pressure at the turnstiles had become dire. There were even reports of police horses being lifted off their feet in the crush of fans. Before the officers could do much to alleviate it, spectators took matters into their own hands. People inside the courtyard began pulling others over the turnstiles just to escape the dangerous squeeze. Some officers may have assumed they were trying to slip unticketed fans into the stadium, which only exacerbated tensions between spectators and police. Police Superintendent Roger Marshall sensed the situation was getting out of hand. He later testified he was convinced someone was going to get killed. Marshall radioed to the police control box for permission to open one of the massive exit gates. But the request was repeatedly met with silence from the control box, where Superintendent Duckenfield had not yet made a decision. Well, by 2.40, things had also gotten much worse in the pen. The pressure inside was unlike anything Philip had experienced before. He even noticed an old man pass out. By now, Philip knew something was very wrong. But it was too late. He could barely move, and he definitely wasn't able to exit through the tunnel. He was stuck. At 2.45 p.m., there was 15 minutes left to kick off. Thousands of people were now pressing into the turnstiles, afraid they'd miss the game. Inside the gates, it wasn't much better. There were too many bodies in the pedestrian tunnel leading to the pens. According to later reports, police officers had fear in their voices as they described the situation over radios. We don't know whose voices they were, but it may have been Superintendent Marshall who repeatedly asked Chief Duckenfield to let him open one of the exit gates. At 2.52, eight minutes before kickoff, players were warming up on the field, oblivious to what was going on in the rest of the stadium, and things were about to take a turn for the worse. It was around then that Chief Duckenfield changed his mind. 
He gave the order to open a large exit gate, Gate C, to relieve some of the pressure. Within moments, experts estimate over a thousand Liverpool fans streamed through the gate into the stadium, making it even more dangerous inside. It was now three sharp. Not knowing the tragedy that was unfolding, the referee whistled for the game to start. This triggered more pushing as spectators realized they were missing the beginning of the match. Those stuck in the back of the tunnel or outside forced their way in harder. The crowd pressure became so strong, some fans were lifted off their feet and moved by the crowd itself. Others fell, disappeared underfoot, and were crushed by the mass of bodies. In the central pen, Philip Wilson found himself in a similar situation. His feet no longer touched the ground, and he was being shoved into the fence. Philip later described it like drowning. Eventually, his face started to scrape the barrier. The only way to keep his skull from being crushed was to squirm his way to the ground. An on-air BBC commentator reported that police had converged on that side of the stadium to handle what appeared to him to be overcrowding, rather than, quote, misbehavior. He was likely talking about hooliganism, which was, of course, a real threat at some matches, but didn't seem to be present at Hillsborough that day. A few minutes after three in the central pen, pressure kept growing. Survivors later recalled hearing other fans weeping. What many didn't realize at the time was that people weren't just wailing, they were dying. According to an article in Wired magazine, just five people pushing on one victim can create the equivalent force of 674 pounds. Uh, that's like the full weight of a vending machine on your ribs. And when the crowd becomes that dense, people can die of compression asphyxia. That's when a person can't expand their lungs enough to breathe in oxygen. Those who weren't struggling to breathe faced other issues. Some people stuck in the crowd vomited, Others emptied their bowels uncontrollably. As this tragedy was unfolding, the football match continued. Players, coaches, and refs were completely unaware of what was going on in the stands. By that point, Philip found himself crumpled on the ground. The mass of bodies above him seemed to block out all light. Even worse, he was suffocating in the cramped hot space. Philip drifted in and out of consciousness. Then, eventually, he passed out. He was now at the mercy of the crowd above him. The question was, how was it going to end? Coming up, a rescue operation begins, but is it too late? The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Now, back to our story. 
It was the 1989 FA Cup semi-final, Liverpool versus Nottingham. Only five minutes after kickoff, Liverpool player Peter Beardsley almost scored. The ball ricocheted off the crossbar of the goal, causing many spectators in the stadium to cheer. Hearing the applause, fans in the back of the tunnel pushed even harder. As one report put it, that's when the crowd convulsed and all hell broke loose. Moments later, fans and police streamed onto the field, causing the referee to stop the game. Even then, there was confusion on the field and in the stands. Some spectators booed, unaware of what was going on. They wanted the game to continue. But they soon realized what had happened. People were being crushed to death inside one of the spectator pens. Not long after, the scene transformed into a massive rescue operation. Police rushed from all sides of the stadium as nearby spectators tried to help. But there was no easy solution to rescue the trapped fans. The steel crowd control fencing was designed to withstand riots. There were very few emergency exits and no easy way to get people out. Fans in the deck above the pens took matters into their own hands. They lifted some people by their arms and out of the crush. On the field, police officers unlocked the few emergency gates, but even those became jammed with people trying to escape. At that point, some officers scaled the fence and pulled people up and over. One of those lifted to their safety was an unconscious 17-year-old, Philip Wilson. Once over the barrier, he was laid out on the field and his injuries were assessed. He had massive bruising across his torso and large cuts to his head and legs. He was unconscious, but he was alive. Police left him on the ground to recover while they returned to the fence to try to save more lives. But in some places, the crowd pressure was so great it was impossible to extract anyone. They were all stuck. Meanwhile, in the police control box, Chief Duckenfield hesitated to declare a major incident. According to an inquiry report by the Lord Chief Justice, Duckenfield was not yet fully aware of the seriousness of the situation. If he had been, they would have alerted local hospitals, activated additional police backup, and hastened ambulances to the scene. We don't know why these measures weren't taken, but regardless, the delay may have prevented life-saving care from getting to some victims. Perhaps even more frustrating, when emergency responders arrived on the scene, they were blocked from getting in. In one instance, firefighters armed with hydraulic fence-cutting equipment weren't granted access to the pitch because of poor communication. The police outside hadn't been told that emergency services were requested. One police inspector told a firefighter, quote, I don't really think we need you. Even though dozens of ambulances raced to the scene, only two ever made it to the Liverpool side of the stadium. Others were trapped in the crowd streaming out of the gates. Of the 96 spectators who died, only 14 were ever transported to a hospital. That meant much of the first aid was administered by the spectators and police on hand. Philip Wilson was one of the many who made it out of harm's way. He eventually regained consciousness. 
Looking around at the carnage, there's little doubt he considered himself fortunate. Instead of going to the hospital like many of the wounded, Philip fled the stadium and caught a bus back to Liverpool. Still shell-shocked from his brush with death, he knew today could have been his last. He wasn't the only one counting his blessings. By the end of the day, reports suggested at least 200 injured. Today, we know it was more than 700. And for others, the consequences were far more severe. Out of the 94 people that died that day, the youngest victim was a 10-year-old boy named John Paul Gilhooley, a cousin of the future Liverpool football legend Stephen Gerrard. The oldest victim was a 67-year-old retired postal worker. Only seven of the deceased were women, including teenage sisters Sarah and Vicky Hicks, whose parents witnessed the tragedy from elsewhere in the stadium. Over the years, three more individuals died of injuries related to the crush. To show support for the victims, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher traveled to Sheffield the next day. During the trip, she inspected Hillsborough's steel pens and spoke with police officials. She likely received conflicting reports of what happened. According to court testimony from Chief Duckenfield, he told an official from the English Football Association that Liverpool fans had gained unauthorized access to the stadium through Gate C, not that he'd ordered the gate be opened. According to Justice Taylor's inquiry report, Duckenfield went further, claiming Liverpool fans forced their way through the gate. But Duckenfield testified at a 2015 inquest that he did not recall saying that. Either way, his statement about Liverpool fans seemed to become a common refrain amongst officials and media personalities. Not long after, BBC commentator John Motson echoed a similar message. During his on-air broadcast, he reported that one of the outside gates had been broken by unticketed people. That was just the tip of the iceberg when it came to blaming fans for the tragedy. Local officials allegedly reported that a tanked-up mob caused the disaster, although Thatcher seemed to hear the opposite from victims, many of whom were still recovering in hospitals. Perhaps for that reason, Prime Minister Thatcher demanded an immediate investigation. Within 48 hours of the tragedy, Thatcher appointed 59-year-old Lord Justice Peter Murray Taylor, a high-level criminal judge, to spearhead the inquiry. Over the next few months, Taylor interviewed close to 100 witnesses and people involved in the disaster. He analyzed the stadium's construction as well as the crowd control fences. In August 1989, he issued a scathing report about who was to blame. For some survivors like Philip Wilson, it was little consolation for the nightmare they lived through. It seemed like no one group or person was being held accountable. To this day, Philip can't even say the words Hillsborough Stadium. Instead, when he discusses the events, he refers to it simply as H. Understandably, the public's desperate search for truth and answers about the Hillsborough disaster may have generated rumors and conspiracy theories. In our next episode, we'll dive into three of them. 
like conspiracy theory number one, that the stadium's construction may have caused the tragedy. Or two, that police missteps led to the deaths of so many people. And finally, three, that some members of the police force were being shielded from blame by a secret society, the notorious Freemasons. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back next time with a new episode. For more information on the Hillsborough disaster, amongst the many sources we used, we found ESPN and BBC's documentary Hillsborough by Daniel Gordon extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember... The truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Eric Cunningham, edited by Adam De Silva and Lori Marinelli, fact-checked by Cheyenne Lopez, researched by Sapphire Williams, produced by Aaron Larson, with sound design by Russell Nash. Our hosts are Molly Brandenburg and me, Carter Roy. Carter Roy.